Welcome listeners. I'm Suzanne Feeney, a pharmacist at CE Impact. We are thrilled to partner with Dr. Wall each week to produce this podcast. We hope you'll continue to listen in every Tuesday. Episodes always drop by 5 a.m. And pharmacists, you can earn up to 26 hours of CE a year just by listening in every Tuesday. Today's podcast episode is supported by an educational grant from Zelia Pharmaceuticals, a specialty pharmaceutical company focused on providing important anti-infective treatments against serious and often life-threatening infections. Game Changers creates awareness of trends, laws, pharmacotherapy, and medical practice changes that can significantly impact pharmacy. Let's listen in to today's episode. Welcome to another edition of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University, and I am uh, very pleased and actually very grateful uh, to my frequent co-host, uh, Jake Galdo, who's joining me from CEI. Uh, we're going to be walking through a, a topic today that, that I will totally admit I'm no expert on, and that's why I needed definitely some, some help from, from uh, as the Beatles say, a little help from my friends. So uh, we'll be talking today about uh, uh, basically just a very brief HIV update. Uh, uh, this was kind of triggered by a couple of things in uh, November. The Infectious Disease Society of America came out with uh, their PCP or primary care physician or provider guidelines for HIV because, again, HIV is now a chronic disease and, and these people are essentially living normal life lifespans, but uh, uh, they still have some issues we need to, to be, be aware of. And, and, and I think this absolutely translates into the realm of especially community pharmacists. And, uh, and so we'll be talking about that. And, and Jake will definitely give us our, our uh, perspective on that. And then as every year comes up in JAMA around uh, July or August, the, the latest updated guidelines for the treatment and now prevention of HIV uh, has also been uh, uh, published. So we thought it was a good time to kind of talk about that as well. Uh, before we leap into this, thank you for listening. Um, if uh, if you head over to where you get your podcast, please give us a like. Please subscribe if you aren't doing that. Uh, um, we tell your friends and family to do the same because we need all the help we can get. And uh, and uh, don't forget CE Impact uh, are, are, is, is the people who help get this uh, on and 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 uh, uh, are the producers of this program, and of course they have numerous terrific uh, uh, continuing education programs. And head on over there; they're they're affordable, they're 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 timely, they're accurate, and of course we're part of that. So if if you uh, uh, listen to us on on the way into work and you want to grab some quick CE, all you have to do is sign up for our program and uh, answer a quick question, and you get a little bit of CE for for listening to uh, us for 20 minutes. I mean, I, I don't think there's easier CE than that. So before we leap into this, uh, you know, uh, being an, an, an older pharmacist, a more veteran pharmacist, I guess is a good way to put it, is is I was actually finishing my training with my bachelor's in pharmacy as uh, the HIV epidemic was was really in, in full swing. And and it really, uh, my first few years as a bachelor pharmacist in a hospital, I, I really I really caught the the tail end of the HIV, you know, uh, you know, epidemic, the hell years of, of HIV. And, you know, it for, for, for clinicians who are younger, who really never got to see a lot of that it was absolutely terrifying and and you know i i still have vivid memories of patients in our icu dying of 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 pcp pneumonia of of toxoplasmosis of of uh, cryptococcal meningitis and we just literally couldn't do anything for these patients you know and and you know this was the time before retrovirals existed and you know azt was really the only retroviral on the market and and people didn't tolerate it very well and and it 
cause all sorts of of, 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 uh, of hematologic problems on top of that. And every drug we use, and this is true to an extent now because we still use a lot of the same drugs for opportunistic infections, they had tons of side effects and a lot of them needed to have their drug levels monitored. So pharmacists were definitely in the thick of things, at least at least in, it seemed that way to me as, 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 as a very, very young pharmacist. Um, and, and it's just absolutely amazing how far we've come in, in, in that, in those 30 years to now, you know, essentially HIV is a chronic disease. And if, and if people are adhering to their medications, we can basically, they can lead normal lives, completely normal lifespans. And now we have the ability to even prevent um, HIV. And, and, and so in, in the absence of a, a vaccine, which who knows with all the, the new technology that's been developed for, for, for COVID, where we're going to stand on that in the next five years. But, but, but certainly even now, uh, the idea that you could prevent HIV uh, um, as well as very successfully treated, I think would have, would have blown my 30 year younger self away. And, and again, you know, when, when those of us, you know, you get kind of, kind of depressed about what's going on with COVID right now, again, human are, 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 are capable of doing amazing things if you throw enough brain power and, and money at, at a problem. Um, many times we can come up with some pretty innovative solutions, and that's exactly what's happened here. So enough of the meanderings of an old man. We can kind of uh, kind of talk about uh, 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 the, the updated guidelines. So in, in November, the Infectious Disease Society of America uh, came up with uh, uh, primary care provider guidelines because, again, they realized that, that um, in, again, as recently as probably even 10 years ago, it was infectious disease providers who were handling the care for, for, for most HIV patients. And that included, you know, even some of their, their normal, you know, regular health care, like, you know, monitoring their lipid levels, because many of these drugs had lipid, ab, you know, can cause lipid abnormalities and blood pressure and all that other stuff. And a couple of things have happened is one, of course, the, the medications that we've used have gotten a lot safer. Um, yeah, they still have side effects, of course, but, but, but they don't seem to have a lot of weird problems that we used to see with some of the older drugs. And the second is, Again, these people are going to live a completely normal lifespans as long as they're adhering to their medications. And so because of that, I think that's why IDSA kind of felt like it was it was a good idea for kind of a cliff notes version for the primary care provider who very well, once they kind of get started on their therapy from an infectious disease provider, uh, the, the, the infectious disease provider may have very informal contact or informal follow-up. And so it's going to be the primary care provider who's really going to be doing a lot of the follow-up with this patient. And so they mention all this in the, in the kind of the preamble to the guidelines and they talk about, okay, so then when we're talking about a initiation of care. So if someone comes in to a primary care providers group and they're going to start being seen by a, by a you know, family medicine physician or, or a internal medicine physician or, or mid-level provider. And you know what, what kind of lab should be tested uh, at the beginning of care. And, and this is kind of reflected in, in the 2020 update to the guidelines that, of course, you're going to want a baseline CD4 count, make sure that that's over 200 so that, that there's no, no necessity for uh, uh, prophylaxis for, for opportunistic infections. And again, today, you know, that's something that's just not needed all that much anymore. Again, just absolutely amazing. Uh, checking an HIV viral load to make sure that 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 we've got good control of what's going on. If you haven't started uh, uh, antiretroviral therapy, to it is recommended to check for resistance to drug genotypes of, of this strain of HIV, and and that that's now pretty commonly done. Uh, they do recommend checking a uh, some, some genomic stuff. So again, this is where pharmacists I think can certainly come into into play. Checking for an HLA uh, B five seven zero one. 
one uh, mutation. And if, if, if you have that mutation, then they're at extremely high risk of severe allergy from a Bacavir. And so that wouldn't be a drug you'd want to use in those patients. Uh, they want to check a lipid panel. They want to check um, a, a clean blood count and a basic metabolic panel and just follow those things every six to 12 months, basically. Also at initiation, if this is or hasn't already been done in the workup, that they, uh, they do recommend a, a, a sexually transmitted infection uh, screen. So that would include screens for, you know, syphilis and, you know, and all the others, uh, TB screen, and then screens uh, to check for hepatitis A, B, and C. And if they've not been vaccinated to make sure they're vaccinated. So, you know, that, as the primary care uh, provider is kind of picking these patients up for the first time, those are all things they're going to want to check. Um, they, they say it is reasonable to consider checking a G6PD level as, 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 uh, uh, as we all know, those are that the patients who have G6PD deficiency are at high risk of hemolytic anemia uh, on a number of medications. And unfortunately, those are several of those medications are used in HIV patients. So medications like Dapsone uh, and even sometimes Bacrim in these patients. And, um, and so that, that's something they say it isn't absolutely necessary to consider, but, but it's, it, if, if you would like to do that, it's reasonable to do so. And then they say to continue checking the HIV viral load every uh, uh, four to eight weeks until there's suppression, until there's no, uh, no detectable HIV RNA, and then every three to four months thereafter. And then once the CD4 count is above 300 or so, you can basically check that every year or so. The other thing they do go into is that these patients are still at very high risk for depression. They're still, uh, many of these patients, unfortunately, have substance abuse issues. And so making sure that that, that uh, the pr uh, primary care provider is screening for those things uh, certainly makes sense. And and uh, again, I think pharmacists can, can definitely play a role here, especially in the community setting. Um, and then uh, checking A1C as well as part of the lipid panel as, as baseline. Again, several of these medications um, um, do have um, the potential to, to alter lipid levels and, and increase the risk of, of hyperglycemia as well. And they do mention that the other place where, where primary care providers, and again, I think pharmacists play a role here, is the cost. And, and certainly in several of these drugs, cost has come down, but it's still by no means cheap and it will not be cheap for, for years to come. And so uh, they mentioned that in the, in the IDSA guidelines that the patients may, if they were to pay out of pocket, may pay up to $50,000 a year for their antiretroviral therapy. And uh, obviously, you know, unless you're, you know, Bruce Wayne or Tony Stark, you're probably not going to be able to afford that. And so, you know, uh, you know, making sure that they, they have, you know, uh, good insurance or if they, you know, that they, if they're having difficulty with their insurance, that they have some sort of, 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 of connection to patient assistance programs. And mo most of these uh, companies that have made these, especially during the COVID-19 epidemic or, or pandemic, is, have, have, have loosened their rules to making things a little more affordable. So, you know, kind of a, kind of a, a smorgasbord of, 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 of recommendations for the primary care uh, provider guidelines. And again, as I mentioned, uh, uh, Jake uh, is with me. And, and so I was going to definitely ask his opinion on, you know, which of these things are in, in his review of the IDSA guidelines. What, what did he see that, that pharmacists can, can play a role in? What has he seen in his own practice that, that, you've, that you've played a role with, Jake, on, in these patients? Thanks, Jeff. And I'm, I'm really excited to talk about HIV because, um, and I love that you started with, with history. And, and uh, instead of saying veteran, I'll go with older. So you as an <laughs> older pharmacist. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. So, great. Uh, Just call me a gray hair. Older pharmacist. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, gray hair. So as, as Dr. Grayhair um, was talking about his bachelor days, uh, he, he talked about like seeing this and it was brand new. So like you're telling us that essentially in pharmacy school, you didn't really get taught HIV or AIDS because it wasn't around. Right. Yet, yet when I was in pharmacy school, we were taught it. 
And so I think that there's a, this, this mindset shift that we have a generational difference in almost a good way that, you know, some of our more veteran practitioners have never really learned HIV. They never learned about it, so it's scary. Right. Uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to burst the bubble because I do this with, with our pharmacy students all the time when I used to teach this, is that there are actually more medication classes for hypertension than HIV. Mm-hmm. So we spend all this time saying, well, I got hypertension. I know how to treat that. That's easy. You got like 11 plus classes of medications and you're learning all of that and you're saying it's easy. So why is HIV so hard when there's like six classes? Okay. And, then, and then if we're going to really talk about it, I love the names of our HIV drugs. My favorite drug name is Maraviloc. That's used for HIV. It inhibits cell entry. And it's amazing. It's like an orc for World of Warcraft. Like, who doesn't want to be on Maraviloc? Exactly. Right? It's a lovely, lovely name. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and so it's, I think it's really important to kind of demystify this and say, hey, we got this. It's not as complex. It's not as hard. It's okay. We just got to learn some new words, which are fun words. The other kind of big caveat I'll say from like a public health perspective before we jump into like what we do in my practice when we're caring for patients is that when we look at uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and their medication therapy management program, uh, HIV is actually the 11th most contracted medical condition. Hmm. Now, that's about like 12%, and we're not going to talk about this, this stark drop-off of like Diabetes is number one at 99%, and HIV is number uh, 11 at like 12%. Let's, let's not go there. But the fact <laughs> remains, this is one of the most common, from a pure number standpoint, medical conditions that will be faced from an MTM perspective. So, again, it's something that we can do because there's no difference really in, in mortality. Those that have HIV now have a near normal lifespan, as you mentioned. You know, the five year mortality rate is higher in heart failure than HIV. Wow. So this is an opportunity to really help people and, and be their partner lifelong, really, right. which is exciting. Right. Um, yeah. And before, I, before we jump into one other thing, I gotta, give, I gotta call out one more thing, which is you mentioned adherence, and I love it. When you talk about medication adherence for HIV, it is incredibly important. I think the, the cause that I wanna do is, is we have this visceral reaction that adherence means 80%. Um, and that's, that's kind of what the literature says, is that uh, someone is considered adherent to therapy if their proportion of days covered is greater than 80%, unless it's HIV care. At that point, individuals are considered adherent at a 90% PDC. Right. So it is important to say that we want adherence, but it is a different adherence threshold. And makes sense because I mean, there, there. I really can't think of a of a disease almost that that, you know, with the exception of maybe some cancers that 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 you know, this is just it's absolutely crucial to to, to be adherent and and uh, with these medications having some you know usual you know dosing instructions and, and instructions for patients you know uh, and this and this you know mad rush which has been a good rush I think to get as the the pill burden down as much as they possibly can I mean you know how many how many of these antiretroviral drugs can we jam into one capsule sort of thing and and it's been a, a tremendous breakthrough I think with, with that one you know I mean it, it, it makes you go in other disease states if we had this this kind of you know if, if we if we worked really really hard to make everything Q day you know how you know how would we improve adherence in other disease states so I, I, I completely agree with you 
Well, I love it. And I love that you're talking about like slamming everything into one capsule, but this doesn't mean the capsule is getting bigger. It's nope. still a normal sized tablet. We're still yes. able to take it <laughs> yes. uh, easily. This is not a, uh, a giant horse pill. Right? Yes. It is it's large, but it works and it has right. all the drugs. And sometimes we even get four into one, one tablet. Right. Um, and I think you're right because to me, the, the overarching idea that I have whenever I have the opportunity to care for someone with HIV is I think to myself, two nukes and something else. That's the mantra that I have. That's the mantra I taught our students. That's the mantra we teach our other pharmacists when we care for patients with HIV. It's a little different now, but we're still going to stick with our mantra, two right. nukes and something else. Mm -hmm. Because the backbone of HIV pharmacotherapy is to, to ensure that the patient is on two nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, two nukes. Right. And then the something else is that we want another mechanism of action to prevent um, proliferation of the HIV virus. And so the something else could be like an integrase inhibitor. It could be a non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor. It could be a protease inhibitor. So again, this idea is that patients should, for the most part, be on three medications, two nukes and something else. And as a bare minimum, whenever I'm dispensing drugs, that's what I look at. And it is surprising how many times I catch something, either the other medication wasn't transferred to the pharmacy, the patient forgot about it, they ran out of refills, and it's an opportunity for an intervention to optimize care. Right, and an intervention that, again, may very well keep them from developing a resistant organism. You know, as, I, as I've read anyway, you know, uh, wild-type HIV in the United States is still fairly susceptible to this, you know, to the two-nuke backbone with, with, with another drug that you just mentioned, you know, you, where you get into real problems and where I think the patients that give some of my, my ID docs here in town, some headaches are the ones that have, you know, not been adherent and if they've had to keep switching and keep switching and keep switching until they're running out of options. You know, so yeah, you're you're absolutely correct that you know a catch like that, you know, it you know the community pharmacists may well you know big deal. No, that's a huge deal because it gets them down this road of, of I have nothing left to treat these patients with. So yeah, it, it's it's extremely important. I totally agree. So while we're on that, we should probably quickly talk about the the 2020 update guidelines. Uh, and again, for those of you who are are not HIV experts like myself, um, I I do know even I know that 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 are yeah, in the summer. Every summer, uh, the the new set of guidelines are, are published in JAMA, um, and and again they're just updated. And and you know this is a this is a disease state that you know so many great you know breakthroughs are happening on so many on so many fronts that you know every new year the guidelines, as you might imagine, are, are pretty dramatically different. Um, though the one thing that, as Jake pointed out, that hasn't changed in several years is is this first line uh, you know therapy. And so the you know guidelines do recommend antiretroviral therapy basically as soon as you diagnose somebody, unless they're in the middle of a couple of disease states. So these are people who probably have full-blown AIDS who are, are uh, either have active tuberculosis or in the middle of cryptococcal meningitis. Those patients are at high risk of developing immune reconstitution syndrome, which is which can be very much like septic shock in those patients. Those patients are almost always going to be hospitalized. And, and we actually had a case of that in my hospital a couple of years ago where we had immune reconstitution syndrome. So it does still happen, but most of these patients aren't going to be at that point usually. And so again, you know, uh, they, they want to start 
start antiretroviral therapy as quickly as possible in these patients. Um, and as, as, as Jake pointed out, when you read the guidelines, they, they say, well, we really don't recommend one particular setup. There's 80,000 combinations you could possibly use. The, the 2020 guidelines say that, that for, for ease of use, because it's, it's, it's daily and it's easy to use, that, that, they, they, that the first, though not necessarily most recommended regimen is bitegravir, uh, tenofovir, and amtricabine. And, and in particular, they, they do point out that uh, the tenofovir um, um, salt, um, and again, I'll, I suspect this is someplace else that, that Jake and his colleagues in community pharmacy can make, make, a, make a, 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 uh, an impact, is they, they do call out tenofovir alafenamide because the previous uh, tenofovir uh, um, um, salt form, uh, disaproxyl, was associated with more side effects, in particular more renal tubular acidosis, which I have seen, and uh, um, uh, more bone mineral loss, which these patients are at risk of anyway. And so they do actually call out that that combo. But again, they do say that, that you know, that they don't say this is the one that everybody should be on. They just say this is the one that, that for ease of use and, 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 all, and, and safety and all stuff, it seems to be a reasonable first-line age in most patients. If patients have tuberculosis, that, that, that really changes is the, the fact if they have hepatitis B, uh, you're going to want to make sure tenofovir is in that in that regimen as well. So you know, way beyond the scope of what we're talking about here. But I but I think that that, that that's you know I think what the what the average community pharmacist or hospital pharmacist should know about the guidelines. And then they do spend a significant amount of time, which has been the biggest breakthrough I think in the last five years, talking about prep or, or post exposure pro, or pre exposure prophylaxis and post exposure prophylaxis. And again, the, the fact that we were, that we're even able to do this is just absolutely mind-boggling to me and and again tells you how how far we've come in 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 the in the treatment of hiv uh they and again i, I think pharmacists can play a, a tremendous role here you know um you know looking at patients at risk answering questions making sure that patients get into their physician for this prescription as quickly as they possibly can especially in post-exposure prophylaxis uh, they do recommend it basically in, in in any patient who feels they're at risk of hiv infection and they don't really go into detail about that but they they do they do say that that if you if you feel like you're at HIV infection, have a conversation with with your physician. If they agree, then it is reasonable to use in these patients. Uh, they do recommend for oral prep that the combination of tenofovir and amtricabine is 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 what's once daily is what's recommended. Um, and then they then there's a variety of of, of other potential uh, uh, recommendations for different patient populations. Um, and in particular patients, uh, they still recommend who have kidney dysfunction, osteopenia, or osteoporosis. Um, they still say that, 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 that instead of the tenofovir disaproxyl, again, this is where I think pharmacists can really play a role, tenofovir alafenamide uh, is recommended because of, again, again that risk. Uh, um, they can, there this has been some data in, in using an on-demand method instead of just taking it regularly uh, uh, for, for prophylaxis. Uh, it has been studied a little bit in, in men with have sex with men. Uh, um, and, and, and there's something called the 211 method uh, that uh, is probably on the scope what we want to talk about here, but but it can be used in these patients. And then finally, probably the newest breakthrough, and, and as again, it got a lot, garnered a lot of uh, media attention before COVID hit, was uh, um, uh, we now have an injectable, uh, cabotegravir, which can be given every eight weeks, uh, um, um, can, can can be used in, in, in certain patient populations as well. And again, you know, there are pharmacies who, uh, who deliver, uh, you know, long-term injections, for example, some pharmacies who do depot antipsychotic injections in patients. 
Um, I've heard that some pharmacies are going to be looking into there being the ones who are going to be delivering this this every eight weeks prep. So again, you know, Jake, what, what's your take on all the guidelines for pro prophylaxis and treatment and, and especially the role of the community pharmacist? Again, I think the, the role, well, there's a couple. When we think about the, the product distribution, so dispensing drugs, I think it's making sure that our patients with HIV are on two nukes or something else. Knowing, by the way, that there is dual therapy that is approved for initial therapy, so people could be on just two drugs with some caveats, but always ask the question, two nukes or something else. For those that should be getting PEP, so post-exposure prophylaxis, that's actually three drugs. So we are treating HIV. So that's the two, two nukes and something else. So make sure that that's appropriate therapy. Guidelines recommend that for 28 days. I'll tell you, like earmuffs to everybody, we dispense 30 days because I don't want uh, inventory on my shelf. Uh, so that does <laughs> make happen. Sense. And that's give, okay. give, 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 given the cost of these drugs, that can make complete sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like it's, it's there and, and recognize yeah. that we can have that conversation with our providers to do that. And sure. then, as you said, for PEP, it's, or excuse me, for PrEP, pre-exposure, it's that two-drug combination. So knowing kind of two to three drugs and where they fit, I think helps with the product. When we think about services that pharmacies can do, it's some states are allowing pharmacists to actually do PrEP prescriptions. So I think that's awesome. I, I, think I agree. Screening, screening is huge. Mm -hmm. About a decade ago, we partnered with the CDC to pilot HIV screenings in pharmacies. And at the time, Half of all new infections came from the 20% of people that didn't know they had HIV. Right. And in those 10 years, we now see where it's about 37% of new infections are coming from the 14% of people that didn't know or don't know that they have HIV. So we're getting better because we're screening. Right. And we're using PrEP, but we're, we're screening. And I think that's a role of the community pharmacist is to be an HIV center of excellence. Like we are diabetes centers of excellence or hypertension right. centers of excellence. And just know that there's all these different avenues for innovative services, for interventions to just talk with our patients and optimize their care. Absolutely. And, and, you know, as I, I think the, the, the overarching theme of this whole talk is, is really that, that, you know, like diabetes, like hypertension, you know, HIV, you know, I like the way you phrased it earlier is, is nothing to be afraid of if you're the community pharmacist, you know, you're like, oh boy, I don't know. There was a lot of meds with VIR in their name and I really don't get what exactly they, you know, they, they kind of work against it. And I know I've heard they've got a lot of weirdo side effects and drug interactions and stuff like that. And it, you don't have to know every drug in the universe, just like, you know, you don't, you don't need to, you know, be an expert on every hypertensive drug as you, as you just mentioned. But I think that as, as we see this, this population and we do a better job of screening that, yes, you know, I mean, there, there's no reason at all why, why, you know, pharmacies can't be, you know, centers of excellence where they help screen patients, where they, you know, are ensure that they're getting either, you know, that they're getting PEP or PrEP, that the patients who are, are who are being treated, that, you know, their lipid values are being followed correctly, that their, yeah, their HIV, HIC or A1C, excuse me, values are being followed correctly. I mean, all those things that many community pharmacists already do and, and I think are, are definitely opportunities for, for expanding care. And, you know, the corollary always with that is that we're, we're appropriately reimbursed for our knowledge and for our ability to improve outcomes in those areas. So, no, I totally agree. So, any last words for you before we head on out the door, Jake? Uh, no, just December is National HIV Month. Uh, December 1st, I think, is, is World HIV Day. So it happy HIV Month to everybody. 
I agree. So, so an, an, a, maybe a, maybe a very timely pl- uh, place to have this. So we'll uh, we'll wrap up just a few last thoughts. But uh, before we do that, a word for, from our producer, CE Impact. Game Changers discusses clinical guidelines and pharmacotherapy trends that significantly impact practice. Game Changers is produced and accredited by CE Impact and hosted by Dr. Jeff Wall. New episodes are released each week and available for pharmacy continuing education credit to CE Impact subscribers. CE Impact subscription service brings you the CE you need on the topics that matter the most. Check out the link to sign up in the show notes. Use code PODCAST for a Pharmacy Podcast Network discount. So, you know, the, I think this was a timely talk because, again, the, we had two new sets of guidelines. As uh, as a non-infectious disease specialist pharmacist uh, who doesn't deal with a lot of patients with HIV, I, I'm like kind of, I think Jake mentioned earlier today, I'm, I'm, I get a little nervous with, 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 with antiretroviral therapy just because I feel like I'm not come i don't know the medications well and i think there are several for, for a lot of you know generalist pharmacists like myself the, this it seems like we kind of wall off certain areas of of, of pharmacy you know you know uh, you know you know chemo drugs hey, i don't need to know chemo drugs that they're so specialized i'll never need to know them they're really weird i don't need to know them you know and i think hiv meds hepatitis c meds kind of fall into this well i don't know they're really expensive and they can i don't really understand how they work all that well a lot of the times and stuff like that but i don't think you need to be in you know the greatest expert in the universe on these drugs to make a real impact with with your patients just in the things that we've talked about during during this talk so and as i mentioned before you know for for those of us getting getting depressed about covid-19 you know, look how far we came with with, with HIV, and 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 uh, and I'm really hopeful that 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 uh, in a very much shorter period of time that that that, that we'll see the fruits of, of the scientific expertise and 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 resources thrown at, at dealing with the pandemic. So, so that deals with this uh, week of of, of game changers. Again, uh, thanks for listening. Please like us. Please subscribe. Please tell your friends. Please head over to CE Impact and, and sign up for some for some CE programs so we can keep this uh, show going. Uh, I'm Jeff Wall. We'll catch you next week. But remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We'll catch you later.